You are now listening to the October 27th broadcast of Unity in Christ. In this hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of our program called The Attributes of God. I am Susan Holtgrew, your host for this series. So far, we have been learning about God's incommunicable attributes that only He has. We learned about His triunity, yet oneness. Remember the cluster of grapes? Many grapes, yet one cluster? And we learned about His transcendence and infiniteness. God is far above and beyond us, transcendent, and He has no limits because He is beyond all limits, infinite. Today we are going to talk about another incommunicable attribute of God. It is eternal. While being infinite refers to limits, being eternal refers to time. God does not have a beginning or an end. He has always existed, and He is outside of time because He created time. Moses starts a prayer to God in Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, in which he said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And Jesus himself says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The dictionary defines eternal as having no beginning and no end in time, lasting forever. In the book, The Joy of Knowing God, Richard L. Strauss describes the eternality of God. He says, before anything was created, God existed. Because God is eternal, he is self-existent. That is, he is the only being who doesn't owe his existence to somebody else. He is independent of any other being or cause. He is over and above the whole chain of causes and effects. He is uncreated, unoriginated, without beginning, owing his existence to no one outside himself. He has life in and of himself. Were it any other way, he would not be God. An eternal being must be self-existent. Sometimes our thoughts about God are small and very limited, because it can be hard to think of the vastness and greatness of God. But it is good to have our mind expanded about knowing God and learning a term that describes his grandeur. It is like telling someone about the Grand Canyon. You can explain what it looks like, and when they picture it in their mind, it would be an average canyon. But when they actually visit the Grand Canyon and walk out to one of the viewing vista points and look down, 
that person's mind has just expanded immensely by the beauty and enormity of the Grand Canyon. The same can be said about God as we learn more about him. Because God is eternal, we can be secure in our salvation. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 4, he writes, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Did you catch that? Before the foundation of the world? God was already there. He existed long before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it states, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we have God's promise of eternal life and entrance into the eternal kingdom. As Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I would like to end today's program with the words of Second Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. God bless you all. Goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. 
Last week, Alan, along with his bride, Polly Heller, and Dr. Ed Delph, the authors of the book, Learning How to Trust, they talked about the differences between trust and forgiveness. And this week, we continue that conversation by discussing three things. Number one, what do decisions about trusting God and trusting others reveal about us? Number two, we're going to learn to rethink the way that we think about trust. And number three, we're going to learn the next several steps in the process of how to trust. We're also going to hear a fantastic story from Polly about Alan and how she learned how to rethink what she was thinking. This conversation is drawn from Alan, Polly, and Ed's book, Learning How to Trust. And to learn more, visit walkandtalk.org for more information. Let's talk about this choice thing for a second, because I think that's a, you know, I used to say the decisions you make, make you, and that nothing could be t- more wrong than that, because you see, our decisions, they don't make us, they reveal us, mm-hmm. and then that sets into action kind of the, you know, where this is taking you, and then it makes that, but see, that decision, when it's like the dash, it's like the red light on your dashboard, it's like when you see that red light, something's wrong, and God well, let's just make those decisions, but it's not meant to make us, it's meant to reveal us. And so we can do something with it right then. Why am I feeling this way? Why am I not choosing to believe that God is good? Why? See, our decisions reveal us, and then they make us. So the idea is, again, everything begins with revelation. I mean, the, you know, in the beginning was the logos. All right, we had all this truth, but no light. Nobody could hear God, Father, in the beginning was Logos, but you couldn't see him. So the Holy Spirit's waiting up there, and he's just hovering, and he's waiting for somebody to say something. He's not going to do anything until he hears anything, because faith cometh by hearing, all right, and hearing by the word of God. So all of a sudden, what's in God's mind comes out of his mouth, and he says, let there be light. But why did he? He didn't say, let there be truth and light. The truth was already there. There was just no light. See, and sight requires light. All right, you got to have light before there's sight. So God said, the problem is nobody can see us. Nobody can see anything. It's gross darkness, but we're all here. Father, Son, everybody was there, but nobody could see it. So the first thing he did was created light. It was truth, then light. Oh, Lord, send thy light and send thy truth. Let them lead me to your holy hill. So the light of decision is meant to be like a, a aha. You know, when you feel that way, when I'm heading this way, that decision you make, reveals you, reveals where you are. And that's what we try to do is say, you know, and I and it's very hard, incidentally. I, I just want to stop for a second because this always worries me when you have this truth encounter here, this idea, but I'm not, we aren't saying anybody's bad here, but we're saying it's hard to say to the victim, you know, you're responsible. That, or, you know, you're re- right, you're there's responsible timing on that, that and a and, process. Yeah, right. there's, there's a process. And, I'm, and by this, we don't mean to bring condemnation or anything like mm. that. See, grace recognizes consequences but refuses abandonment. Mm. So there's consequences to the choice to make. But God will never abandon us in that process. So mm. I want you to feel good. Those of you that remember your decision, the way you're feeling, where the direction about you is revealing what's in you. And this book gives you a better way to apply that. And definitely the choice 
I mean, I have a choice to comfort myself with the pain that is so comfortable. I think of the wife that gets beaten behind closed doors and she keeps going back to that same man and they they have in psychology they call it a, a wife beating syndrome you know why is this woman going back to the person that's beating her and at least she knows what's there she doesn't know what's in the future and that's another issue of trust that i have to have faith in the god of the universe to trust that what he has is good for me and again, it gets back to my choice to believe, how big is your God? Does he have the ability to change life the way you know it? Are you willing to trust him because he's faithful, because he's trustworthy, to change what you cannot see? And he says, I can do far exceedingly beyond all you think or even can imagine. So if that's the God you believe in, then he can take you out of this darkness and transfer you into the light, he says, of his beloved son. Well, the way we think about things really determines, it colors the way we are going to behave and the mm -hmm. way we are going to respond in situations. Jesus told this story, the man who had given talents uh, to his servants and then he had gone away on a trip and one invested his money very wisely and gained a, a, a reward, a, made a big profit. Another one had fewer talents given to him, and but he also invested those and gained a profit. And then the third one was given a small amount, but he just buried it in the ground. And when the master came back, that servant said, well, I knew you to be a hard man, and I knew that you reap where you don't sow, and you know, you get money uh, that you haven't actually earned yourself, and I was, I was afraid that you were going to be mad at me if I invested it unwisely and didn't make any money. And the master said to him, you foolish, wicked servant you know how could if you knew me to be such a hard man the least you could have done was you know put the money in the bank where it would have earned some interest well that's the way we look at God sometimes we know him to be a hard man we know him to be a righteous judge we know him to be somebody who is going to come down hard on us and is always waiting for us to make a mistake so he can swatted us or crush us somehow. Well, that's not the way God is. So we have to change the way we look at God. We look at God through Jesus, who is the picture of God. If you can't understand who God is by reading his word, look at Jesus and look at his goodness and his love and his kindness and the sacrifice he made for us. Well, the way we think about God is going to determine how easily we approach him and the way we think about other people is going to determine the way we approach them and if I am thinking that Alan is a really hard person to live with he he never You've told me uh, that. He, <laughs> he always gives me a hard time about things and so I'm not going to tell him about the way I really feel because I can't trust him with my real feelings because he's going to give me a hard time he's going to throw them back up in my face he's not going to accept me he's going to if I tell him this story about something I did he's going to judge me about it 
Well, those are the kinds of lies that we tell ourselves that keep us enslaved in the darkness and they keep us from being able to actually enjoy relationship either with God or with other people. So we have to rethink the way we think about another person, the way we think about God. So again, there's the internal thoughts of what, you know, we always have a dialogue going on with ourselves. have you noticed? Yeah. Uh, and that, that can either be negative thinking or it can be truth-telling. And we also have people telling us who we are. And so that's why it's so important to rethink about who God says I am so that my identity is secure in him, not in what somebody's telling me or what I'm even telling myself that are lies from the past. Well, and here's an illustration. Alan and I flew into an airport in North Carolina a few years ago. We were going to a conference and we had been uh, booked on one flight, but then we had gotten on a different flight and our luggage did not arrive at the same time <laughs> that we did. And uh, and Alan was waiting for some boxes of materials to come to the airport through the baggage claim. And this was right after 911, so security was security very was, tight. Security was very tight. They weren't letting anybody stay at the curb, right? But another thing that had happened was that we flew into one airport and our conference was in another town about an hour, an hour and a half away. And Alan had arranged for our rental car in the town that we were going to, <laughs> which meant yeah, that just we, forgot a little detail we, we there. didn't have we didn't <laughs> have our rental car when we got to that airport. So we had to get a very expensive rental car that we that, were huh? going to be driving for about an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> to to the town where yeah. our conference was. There's a little TikTok. I can't believe, Polly, that you, that you remember <laughs> that. You're so spiritual, Polly. I mean, now, now I'm shattered. Okay. Right? My there you whole go. thing is shattered. Yeah. Keep, so I keep had doing to, the interview, and you'll find out more. I had to drive this very expensive rental car around the airport, pull up to the curb at the baggage claim, look and see if Alan had gotten our boxes yet. And I could only sit there for about 30 seconds before the security guy would wave me on. There was nobody else at this airport. And it just, <laughs> there hardly any traffic going on there. And he kept making me drive around the circle of the airport and come back and pull up to the curb, look and see if Alan was there. And I was muttering to myself the whole time, oh, that Alan, he makes all these mistakes. I can't believe he does this to me over and over and over again. He's spending all of this money. Aren't blah, you blah, blah, glad blah, blah. you're not married to and me? So, <laughs> all of a sudden, in my head, there came this little sweet voice that said, he pleases me. And I went, what? Mm, <laughs> who's, wow. who's saying that? And then this voice came again. He pleases me. I wanted to record that voice. And I <laughs> was stunned. Like, oh my goodness. Here I am criticizing, cursing in a way, the very person with whom I am one. God gave him to me to be my protector and my husband and I'm railing at him 
And he is the one whose faith and whose walk with God is so pleasing. And I had to stop in my tracks right there and say, oh God, I am so sorry. You're right. I know his faith pleases you. I have been so wrong. And I have not forgotten that because when I start getting upset with Alan because he is not a detail-oriented person, You've and I am that, very huh? detail-oriented, just the wrong and car in makes, the wrong place. That's he all. makes a he makes a lot of little, uh, let's say, clerical errors in the course of our lives where he just sort of gets things wrong or mixed up, and I want to get really upset with him about those things. But then I have to remember, this is the man whose faith and whose walk pleases God. This is the man who gets up every morning and sits in his chair and has a quiet time and gives his life over to the Lord, and that is so pleasing to God. How can I be so upset and angry with him? I shouldn't be complaining about him. I should be blessing him. Amen, sister. <laughs> Preach it. Well, Bless me. Holly, I, Holly, let's talk about that process yeah. there. Um, you know, here you are, to me, there's two trapezes, and you're on one trapeze. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and you're going back and forth, and the other trapeze is, is there, and it's it's in position to catch you. But the pro the amazing thing of what Polly did there, everybody, if you see this, is it's like she swung up on the trapeze, she let go, turned around in midair, and grabbed the next trapeze, and was able to move on. And I think so many times, mm. see, Polly could have see. I like a root of bitterness could have grown in there. See, yeah. God, what really happened there? God gave you truth with light. Yeah. He pleases me, mm -hmm. and that changed everything. It that's what enabled you to let go of one trapeze, turn around in midair, which is really scary, by the way, <laughs> and uh, you know, grab the next one and move on. And that's this whole this whole process here, guys. That we. Uh, how do you say that we we need to see it's see it's not what you're eating that determines your health it's what's eating you that determines your health right mm. and and that's that thinking and Polly just really that's a great story Polly and she knew all of those Bible verses she knew what she was supposed to do she, she knew loved in that situation but she was in complete darkness mm -hmm. until God said let there be light He pleases me yeah boom you know without faith without hearing from God it's impossible to please God. Mm. And so that whole idea there, you just grabbed onto that, Polly, and just moved from, you know, from the outhouse to the penthouse. That's, I, just, I like that, if I, I can say that. it that way. So just to review these, um, these steps to regaining our trust, we started with remember. Remember who God is. Remember who you are in your relationship to God. And then releasing forgiving, letting go, letting those old hurts and old experiences release them from you back into God's hands. And then you need to rethink. Think about the way that God wants you to think about your life. You can choose not to focus on the negative and on the old hurts and to think about positive things, about the way God wants you to think about these experiences, your life, bringing the light and the truth into them, remembering that God is always there and was there from the very beginning. And then you need to relearn. You need to, to replace old habit patterns with new ones. And 
I was thinking about how uh, when I, Alan and I went skiing one time and <laughs> we were in very deep snow and I'm not a very good skier and I failed to negotiate a little uh, curve in the, in the ski slope and ended up in this big pile of snow with my skis kind of crossed and there was that sort of that x that the cartoonists draw and i was just in a, a mess and alan came skiing up to me and kind of shushed over <laughs> planted his skis and and looked down at me like a like a canadian mounted policeman and oh so you know what happened here and he, he was telling me well all you have to do is plant your poles and bring your you. skis together and shift your weight and i'm like i don't even know which muscle to move to get these skis out of this x and i was really upset with him uh for giving me advice that i didn't know how to apply. I just didn't know how to make it work. And that's part of the next step. We have to know how to do the things that we're talking about. How do you relearn? How do you rethink and establish these uh, patterns in your life that are going to bring you back to a place of trusting? So we have three steps here. First, Believe that you can reclaim your trust. It is possible. You can do it. You can get back to that place again. Uh, the Bible teaches that trust is a gift from God. It says that he's given you everything you need for life and godliness through Jesus. Do you believe this? You know, these aren't just words that, that God put into the Bible. This is really the truth. And we need to believe that and to claim it for ourselves. And then we need to trust wisely. We need to know that God never fails and we can trust in him as he's giving us, uh, walking us into the next phase of our life, taking us out of the darkness and into his light. And then third, we need to live in truth and the power of the spirit. Your level of trust is directly related to how well you know God and his word. So you have to know what the truth is in order to walk in it. And then we need to start living our lives according to his word and relearn how do I do what I used to do, but what the way I used to do it wasn't getting me anywhere. So how do I do it in a new way that's according to his word. How do I start to apply his truth in my life? Ah, yes. The age-old question of applying biblical truth into our lives. How exactly is that done? Well, the prophet Isaiah writes profound words in Isaiah 28.10. He tells us everything over and over. One line at a time, one line at a time, a little here and a little there. See, God is telling us that the application of his word, it takes place over time by reading the Bible cover to cover over and over. And oh man, what a glorious time that is. 
Well, next week, we'll continue our conversation on learning how to trust with Alan, Polly, and Ed. And we'll discuss three things. Number one, how relational pain will either drive us to sin or drive us to our Savior. Number two, the irony of pain in our ability to trust. And number three, how the process of trust establishes new patterns and godly habits in our lives. Well, if you like what you hear, let me encourage you to visit Alan's website, walkandtalk.org. You'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book along with the other resources for you, your family, and your church. And then lastly, you'll also be able to sign up for one of Alan's upcoming trust webinars. And it's there to where you can ask your own personal questions to Alan himself. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll see you next week. To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give Him the glory, great things He hath done, hath done. Great things He hath taught us, great things He hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be A wonder our transport when Jesus we see Praise the Lord, praise the Lord Let the earth hear His voice Praise the Lord, praise the Lord Let the people rejoice Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give Him the glory, great things He hath done, hath done. And give Him the glory, great things He Find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and apps. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. 
try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Someone Who Understands, based on Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. I want to tell you a story, but I want you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Years ago, John Powell told the story of Norma Jean Mortensen. He writes, Norma Jean Mortensen. Remember that name? Norma Jean's mother, Mrs. Gladys Baker, was periodically committed to a mental institution, and Norma Jean spent much of her childhood in foster homes. In one of those foster homes, when she was eight years old, one of the boarders raped her and gave her a nickel. He said, here, honey, take this and don't ever tell anyone what I did to you. When little Norma Jean went to her foster mother to tell her what had happened, she was beaten badly. She was told, our boarder pays good rent. Don't you ever say anything bad about him. Norma Jean learned at the age of eight that it was better to be used and given a nickel and beaten up instead of trying to express the hurt that was in her. Norma Jean turned into a very pretty young girl and people began to notice boys whistle at her and she began to enjoy that, but she always wished that they would notice she was a person too, not just a body or a pretty face, but a person. Then Norma Jean went to Hollywood and took a new name, Marilyn Monroe. And the publicity people told her, we're going to create a modern sex symbol out of you. And this was her reaction. A sex symbol aren't symbols, things, people hit together. They said, honey, it doesn't matter because we're going to make you the most smoldering sex symbol that ever hit the movies. She was an overnight smash success, but she kept saying, did you also notice I'm a person? Would you please notice? Then she was cast in the dumb blonde roles. Everyone hated Marilyn Monroe. Everyone did. She would keep her crews waiting two hours on the set. She was regarded as a selfish prima donna. What they didn't know that she was in her dressing room vomiting because she was so terrified. She kept saying, will someone please notice I'm a person, please. They didn't take notice. They wouldn't take her seriously. She went through three marriages, always pleading, please take me seriously as a person. Everyone kept saying, but you're a sex symbol. You can't be other than that. Marilyn kept saying, I want to be a person. I want to be a serious actress. And so on that Saturday night at the age of 35, when all beautiful women are supposed to be on the arm of a handsome date, Marilyn Monroe took her own life. She killed herself, and when the maid found her body the next morning, she noticed the telephone was off the hook. It was dangling there beside her. Later, investigation revealed that in the last moments of her life, she had called a Hollywood actor and told him she had taken enough pills to kill herself, and 
He answered with that famous line of Rhett Butler in the movie Gone with the Wind. I'll just paraphrase it. Uh, frankly, my dear, I don't, I don't care, okay? This was the last word that she heard. I don't care. She dropped the phone and died. Claire Booth Luce, in a very sensitive article, asked, What really killed Marilyn Monroe, love goddess, who never found any love? Claire said she thought the dangling telephone was a symbol of Marilyn Monroe's whole life. She died because she never got through to anyone who understood. I want you to know that there is someone who understands you. You've probably heard someone say, or maybe you've said it yourself, the trouble with him is that he's forgot what it means to be human. And you're talking normally of some kind of a selfish person who is hard-hearted towards people who have, you know, tremendous hurts or big needs. I just want to say that Jesus understands you, and Jesus hasn't forgotten what it means to be human. Amen? He was fully God, but when he was born on earth, he became fully man. Let's look at what... Chapter Hebrews, I'm sorry, I said four, we'll go to four in a minute. Look at Hebrews chapter two, verse 17. Look carefully and believe it literally. It says, Hebrews 2, 17, just the first part. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. That's us, his brothers and sisters, their humanity. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, in every every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. It's been said Jesus didn't merely resemble humanity in some qualities of human life and nature, but in every way, in all ways, in all respects. In his incarnation, he was real. He was a real man, not an almost man, not a part man. He was holy man. And he put aside all the attributes that he fully had as his own, his foreknowledge, his omnipotence, you know, all of the God attributes that he had. He never gave them, they were never separated from him, but he gave up the exercise of them to the Father. He wasn't conscious that he was God or the Messiah for decades, We're not sure exactly when it might have happened. Maybe the temple during his bar mitzvah. Maybe it was when uh, the father, you know, at his baptism manifested his glory on him and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But it's true, again, that even after he was born into this world, his divine qualities of knowing everything, of having all power, etc., remained. Jesus had them all, but he put the exercise of them at the discretion of the Father. That's why he says, I can do no thing unless the Father tells me to do it. I, don't have, I can't do anything unless it's the Father because it's all at the discretion of the Father. Listen to what Ken Hughes says. I like it because it expresses it very well. He says, this means that Christ grew from infancy through childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, and into maturity in both body and mind. His body developed, as did his mind and emotions. Not only that, but both as a child and through adulthood, he experienced human emotions, anger and joy and sorrow, 
May we reverently understand that the incarnation meant that Christ progressively smelled like an infant, boy, and a man. He thought like a child before he thought like a man. He knew the same range of human emotions as we did as he grew to maturity. He knew hunger. He knew thirst. He experienced pain. If he bruised his leg, he got a, you know, black and blue. If he cut his finger, he bled. It hurt. He found himself annoyed at what people could say at times. He could be sarcastic. He understood what it was to have all the human problems of a sinless nature, of course. There were times when he was overwhelmed by the things that were happening to him. He went through times when he had no money. He, didn't, he was like almost homeless, basically. He said he didn't have a place to live. He also, all that it was to be like an unmarried 30-year-old guy. And this is what it meant when it says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. As a result, this is the point, as a result, Jesus understands. He understands us. Now, if you'll look at chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, the point here isn't so much that Jesus didn't sin. That's a given, right? The point is that he was really, really tempted like us. We don't have a high priest who doesn't understand what it's like to be tempted like us, though without sin. He faced all the same testings that we do. So if Jesus is God, and I know this is a question that popped into my mind and has maybe for years, Therefore, if Jesus as God was incapable of sin, because Jesus, because he's God, couldn't sin, well, how could he experience real, genuine temptation and empathize with us? Isn't my temptation a little different because I can sin than his temptation? So how can Jesus really empathize with fallen sinners since he never yielded to temptation? The fact that Jesus never sins makes him even more able to empathize or to sympathize with us. Here's why. He experienced every temptation more intensely than any one of us ever will. He experienced every temptation more intensely than any of us ever will. William Barclay does a great job of explaining this. He says, the fact that Jesus was without sin necessarily means that he knew depths and tensions and assaults of temptation which we can never know and, and we can never experience. So far from his battle being easier, it was immeasurably harder. Why? For this reason, we fall to temptation long before the tempter has put out the whole of his power. We're easily vanquished. We never know temptation at its fiercest and its most terrible because we fall long before that stage is reached. But Jesus was tempted as we are and far beyond what we are. For in his case, the tempter put everything he possessed into the assault and Jesus withstood it. Think of it in terms of pain. 
This is what he says. Think of it in terms of pain. There's a degree of pain which the human frame can stand. And then when that degree is reached, a person faints and loses consciousness. He has reached his limit. And then there are agonies of pain he doesn't know because there came collapse. It's so with temptation. We collapsed before temptation, but Jesus went to our stage of temptation and far beyond it and still did not collapse. It's true to say that he was tempted in all things as we are, but it's also true to say that never was a man tempted as he was. Right? Thus far, Jesus is able to understand, to sympathize. You know, we think of he is God in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. 20 times New Testament says that. He's at the right hand of God. Does he really understand? Folks, Jesus really understands. The phone isn't dangling for us. There is somebody who understands and who hasn't forgotten what it means to be human. Now, I think it's really disappointing sometimes when you're going through a tough time and you go to a friend and, you know, you're really looking for comfort from your friend. You're really, you're thinking, you know, we've hung out for years, so help me. And, and you realize this friend doesn't give you the kind of comfort you need. They're, they're almost, almost insensitive. I'm not mean in a rude way, but just kind of clueless. And this is what I've learned. Some people are fun friends. And that's basically it. They're fun friends. You just have a lot of fun together. But I've, I've realized that some fun friends, are they don't go beyond that. And when things stop being fun, they're just not the kind of person that you need. You realize that you can't go to them with your real problems or hurts because they just don't operate that way in your life. At those times, you're really looking for a friend who'll be able to come alongside you. Somebody can encourage you, maybe cry with you or get mad with you. A friend who has gone through the same experiences you have, well, that's even better, right? A friend who can empathize with you, and you can realize I'm not all alone. I don't have to carry this by myself. I've got a friend, my friend that understands me. Many times, you know, we wish, I just wish I had a friend like that. I'm telling you, you do have a friend like that. His name is Jesus. Look at verse 15, again. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus sympathizes with us. And this point is emphasized in the strongest way using a double negative in the Greek. In Greek, if you wanted to express something absolutely with certainty and emphasis, you would, you know, kind of pulpit pounding you would use a double negative. We don't in English. We don't say, I ain't got none. You know, that's, don't say that. But in Greek, you would say, no, not. It says, we do not, who cannot. We don't have a high priest who cannot. So here's a double negative right there. This is absolutely so. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us. And our English word sympathize comes directly from the Greek word Sympathao, right, excuse me, which means to sympathize. It means to have compassion. It means to feel the same as. Jesus feels the same as. It means to be touched with the same feelings. When you're going through a testing, when you're going through temptation, Jesus is touched with exactly the same feeling that you're having at that moment. You understand that? When something strikes us, Jesus feels it. 
You understand that? We're the tuning fork. Something hits us, and immediately he feels that. That's what the verse is saying. We're not making it up. This is saying we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. We have a high priest who can, he understands everything. He didn't sin, but he knows exactly what it's like anymore. So if you're happy right now, Jesus absolutely is resonating with your happiness. If you're sad right now, he absolutely, he knows, he really, really knows and feels what you're feeling right now. He really understands and knows what you're going through. Jesus didn't just come to save us, but also to sympathize, to emphasize with us. Imagine Jesus can say to you, I know what you're going through right now. When's the last time you were praying, the Lord is thinking about you, when's the last time you ever thought he would be saying to you, I know what you're going through? John MacArthur urges us to keep this in mind when he says, remember that wherever you may go, he has been there before you. You can get down on your knees when the going gets tough and you can pray, Lord, you know what you went through when you were here. I'm going through it now. And he will say, yes, I know. I know my daughter. I know my kid. I know my child. Someone has suggested that all that Jesus went through on earth, all the testing, all the trials, and all were part of his training for his heavenly ministry for us. Jesus knows what it's like to experience life as it is, as a weak person in this world. He was sinless. He never sinned, but he understands what it's like to be tested and tempted. You know, all You say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about Jesus having my temptation. Jesus didn't have the internet to do it. Listen, listen to this. All temptation boils down to three core issues. Three core issues. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and pride of life. It all, that's a core. You just get everything down to its basics. Every single temptation any of us have boils down to the core of lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. That's what it is. And we don't know all that Jesus was tempted by. The Bible doesn't talk about it, but it says he does commiserate. He vibrates at the same thing you do. And when it's hitting you, it's hitting him. That's amazing. Somebody say amen, because am I the only one excited about this? I really am so touched by this. He could say, understand how it feels like to be tempted like this. Really, Lord? I understand, Mark. I know what it's like to have this kind of temptation. Now, let me show you how Jesus reacts. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Just go back again to that same chapter and look at verse 18. Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, for because he has suffered himself when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we've got to understand that Jesus offers us more than sympathy. Jesus offers us support. 
Jesus gives us the support through, and comfort through the Holy Spirit, and he calls the Holy Spirit. What's another name Jesus called the Holy Spirit by? He called them the helper. Yeah, she got it. And so when we need help, Jesus, who is understanding, I understand completely what you're going through. I understand it right now. I also understand completely what you need right now. And so the help he sends is always through the person power of the Holy Spirit, whom he calls the comforter, the helper. The actual word means the, the person that is called alongside you to help you walk. There's times I feel like in a collapse. The word for comforter means somebody who's coming alongside you so that they can help you walk so you don't collapse. Then come alongside and their strength really becomes your strength. And that's the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. And Jesus said, I will send him to you. And so when we need help, Jesus not only sympathizes, empathizes, he strengthens as well. Jesus gives us the strength through the power of the Holy Spirit so we can have victory. And he says, I also know what it's like to have victory here. And I want to share my victory with you. In his humanity, Jesus was like us in every way, except, and because he was tested and tried to the max, He's able and willing and wanting to help us. He's fully able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Now look at the word help. Look at verse 18. For he himself has suffered when tempted, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to, and if you're a Bible marker, underliner, note taker, the word help right there is important. To help, to help us. And let me tell you what help means. This is where, you know, there is a little disadvantage in us not knowing the Greek culture and all, but the word help was to mean to come, to run to the help of a child who is crying. Is that awesome? Now, a lot of us have kids. A lot of us have young ones. And a lot of us, of course, remember when our kids were little bit, you know, you know the little, the playful little screams and cries and all when they're playing, you know, and all. But you also know that sound as a parent, right? That this is not a happy sound. This is, I've fallen down. This is something bad has happened. And what do you do, mom? What do you do, dad? Immediately. You could be in conversation. You could be deep in something. Immediately it's like this. What? And you're running to your child's aid, Right? This is what this is saying right now. It says, it says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to, when he hears you cry, when he hears you say, help, he is immediately there. He's running to help you. What a picture, amen? What a picture of our Savior. And it's because he knows, oh, I know what this is like. I'm there for you. I'm right. I'm there. Hold on. I'm right there. That's amazing. Jesus runs to assist you and give you help. Verse 16, now go to 4, verse 16. Let's look at what it says. It says, let us then, on account of all of this, this is the let us then. Then because of what? Because of what we've seen here in chapter 2 through 4, let us then with what, gang? Your Bible may say confidence or it may say what? Boldness. Let us then with boldness, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
Your word confidence or your word boldly translated could absolutely be translated, let us come frankly to the throne of grace. Or this is even better, and it's, and it's really it's what it means. Let us come without concealing anything to the throne of grace. You don't have to, you know, come. A lot of people, I'll pray, I'll come to the Lord as soon as I get this victory. And like, when's that going to happen, right? You can come without hiding anything to God's throne of grace. You, his children. You can come without any kind of, you know, well, I'm, a, I'm not going to disclose everything to God. One thing's kind of silly, already knows, right? But you can come, you're coming to the throne of grace. You're not coming to the throne of judgment. You're coming to the throne of grace, and you're seeking mercy and help. And you've got a father who's going to do that. We don't have to hide anything from God. Do not let anything you have done very recently you have done, or in the past, a long way away, that you have done. Don't let it keep you from coming to the throne of grace. We're not to come fearfully or with shame. We're to come boldly, eagerly to the throne of grace. Why can we come boldly? Well, it's because Jesus died for our sins. And he made the final atonement, didn't he? Once and for all. That's the only way you're approaching God anyway. I'm not approaching God because I had victory in my life this week. Oh, Lord, I'm approaching a little more boldly this week because I lived a better life. Uh, last week, it wasn't as bold. God's saying that it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with Jesus. So when we come boldly, to the throne of grace. When we come confidently to the throne of grace, we're showing our confidence in what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's what you're declaring. And if you approach fearfully, you show that you don't have confidence in what Jesus has accomplished for you. He stands before the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father in a human body, in a glorified human body body he has not forgotten what it's like to grow up to be human to be tempted to the max and if he knows what the fullness of temptation is he understands what you're going through in a test in a trial a difficult situation or in the real regular sense of just a temptation. He's there. You understand what I'm saying? You have a sympathetic, empathetic Savior. Lord, we are grateful that you are that kind of person that we are not left to just think of as you as a Savior who is in heaven just ministering for us, which is wonderful, but you have chosen to reveal the fact that it's even more than that, your understanding. Thank you. Maybe no one else understands us, but you do.
that's never been But let mercy fall on me Where everyone needs forgiveness The kindness of the Savior The hope of
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.